Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast. In this podcast, we embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang and I will be guiding you through this exploration with help from experts who are working within local and global systems to mitigate the impacts of climate change while adapting to the new circumstances. In this episode, we will be exploring the economics of climate change. We will uncover the risks that are looming under our current system if economic climate change persists. Todd Thexton will be joining us today. He's a professor from the Business School at Royal Roads University. Todd specializes in environmental economics, exploring the role of markets and businesses within environmental issues. Todd also brings a wealth of knowledge from the public and nonprofit sectors, focused around health and social services. Todd has recently developed a course for the Adaptation Learning Network focused around environmental economics. Thank you so much for joining me today, Todd. I'm hoping you can provide us with a brief description of the course you have developed for the Adaptation Learning Network. Sure, I can. This is a course that really is exploring the intersection between climate, political, and economic systems and the way that they interact with one another. In some ways, you could look at it as an introduction to the financial and economic risks and impacts that are associated with climate change. We spent the first part of the course really exploring just the whole variety of risk and opportunity pathways that move from our changing climate into our financial and economic systems. I think it provides a pretty good foundation for adaptation planners who are needing to think about specific risk exposures of their organizations. I'm wondering if you could outline some of these risks. I think when we're talking about economic risks of climate change, we're we're typically talking about three levels of risk. So the first level of risk are are the physical risks. Those are the risks to things like property, assets, physical capital, public infrastructure like roads and airports. That's the first category of risk. The second category of risk, they're called transition risks. And these are kind of interesting because they're the risks that arise from changes in policy or changes in technology or even changes in market preferences that arise as a result of transitioning to low carbon economies in response to climate change. The highest level are those systemic level risks. Those are the risks that apply to the entire range of our economy, the macroeconomic or critical financial sector risks um, that are exposed there. So, you know, if I were to expand on that a bit, physical risks, I think, are the ones that probably come to our mind most easily when we think about climate-related risks. So we're thinking about which of our assets are exposed to to risks like extreme weather or floods or sea level change or heat waves or, or, or wildfires. When we're thinking about physical risks, we're trapped into just thinking about only those physical risks that threaten the stuff that we own. So our own property or our own assets or capital. But I think in this day and age, with most organizations operating in much more geographically dispersed value networks between suppliers and customers and so on, that just looking at the risk to the stuff that we own isn't really going to be adequate. Because in many cases, if physical risk materializes in any aspect of our value chain, it's likely to have an economic impact on us. So I think we need to kind of broaden our thinking to explore physical risks throughout that value chain. 
So, you know, if I were to think of an example, like let's say a smartphone manufacturer, then it's kind of a complicated example because they've got a really complicated value chain. But, you know, a smartphone company, they might have dozens of component manufacturers that are distributed in five or six different countries across. They're getting all of their raw materials from places like Chile, Canada, Australia, Democratic Republic of Congo, maybe from China. So they're drawing on raw materials all around the world. And then once you put all of those parts together, you're selling your product into a globally distributed marketplace. If you think about an example like that, each geographic point in that value chain has its own regionally specific climate risks. And then there's all of the risks that are related to the movement of stuff between all of those different places, the logistics and the distribution piece. And that brings in then public infrastructure and the risks that we're exposed to due to our dependency on things like ports and highways and railways and so on. When those physical risks materialize anywhere in the value chain, they're going to have some substantial material impacts on an organization. And that's whether it's the cost related to repair of physical plants or other assets, or often more importantly, it's lost revenues that are associated with disruptions in production, supply, or distribution somewhere in the value chain. And for public sector organizations, it's even a little bit more complicated because there's a whole additional set of considerations that have to come to mind. A local government, they have similar risks to a private organization because they've got their own supply chains and they own their own assets and that sort of thing, each of which can be exposed to climate risk. But increasingly, cities are looking more at the interdependencies that arise between their assets. And a really great example that I think was put up by the C40 Cities Group is looking at interdependencies and risks. They come up with this example that, you know, let's say there's a local flood that's damaged your power utilities. Well, power is critical to the operation of your computerized control systems that drive traffic signals. And you can see how the risk sort of cascades through multiple systems that are all interdependent. Those are the physical risks. Uh, on the transition risk side, so these are risks that are likely to arise mostly from changes in policy, government policy. They might arise from changes in the preferences in markets, those preferences that consumers like you and I have. They could come about as a result of technology changes, um, that come about as a result of transitioning to low-carbon economies. So I can give you a couple of examples of that. Let's say that you are a manufacturer of an energy-intensive product. Cement is an example of an energy-intensive product. So let's put your cement manufacturing plant, let's put it in a region in, that has a high dependency on fossil fuels in the energy grid mix. That might be characteristic of a place like Alberta, for example, that uh, has a high percentage of fossil fuel-based energy in the electrical grid mix that you pick up when you plug something in. Now, as part of a climate action plan, there's growing awareness that there's a need for aggressive action around climate change. A government in that region decides to implement a really steep carbon tax, or else it really increases an existing carbon tax really substantially in order to rapidly discourage the use of fossil fuels. So that tax is really going to dramatically shift the cost of energy inputs for our cement manufacturer, and consequently, it's going to increase the price that the cement company needs to receive when it sells its product in the marketplace. And as a result of the rise in, in price, of course, the quantity demanded for cement is going to fall in response to those higher prices. And overall, that cement company's profits are, are going to begin to fall. 
Uh, so its income and ultimately its, its value as a company will be impacted. And it's not being impacted by ch climate change directly, but it's being impacted by the policies that are being introduced to mitigate against climate change. So that's the important distinction between the transition risks and the physical risks. The transition risks result from our decisions as a society or, or our political decisions around how we want to respond to it. And it's not just policy changes. For example, if in our society we gain a growing sense of urgency around doing something about climate change, then it's very likely that we as consumers and as investors are going to begin to migrate away from products and industries with, with uh, intensive carbon life cycles or, or big carbon footprints. If you're an organization with a substantial climate risk exposure, similarly, investors and bankers are going to become increasingly unwilling to provide financial capital to you because your risk exposure represents a financial risk to them too. So I think that around transition risks, that really everybody needs to think about, you know, if we as a society decide to take assertive action on climate, how will the markets view my business or my organization, my products, my services, and so on? To bring another example to light the big five banks in Canada have all said no to oil drilling in the Arctic. So suddenly in a case like that, if you happen to be the energy company that has holdings in those regions and proved reserves that you're counting on your balance sheet as an asset, and suddenly you're not able to get the financing to be able to realize the value of that asset, that's going to have a significant impact on the bottom line of your balance sheet as well. It's exactly those, those kind of changes in government policies and in investment sentiment and market sentiment that create a whole new set of risks for companies. A couple of points to raise about systemic risk. These are the risks that whole economies are exposed to. It's impossible for any organization to kind of diversify away from them. It's something that we'll all be exposed to equally and together because they affect every aspect of our economy. So, you know, you can imagine that if, if climate-related impacts increase in their frequency and magnitude, as they're predicted to do, then uh, the chances of this kind of risk increases. Um, because what we're seeing are things like these climate impacts can reduce the wealth of consumers. As wealth is reduced, then access to debt leverage spending becomes reduced as well. So, you know, if the value of my house is declining because I'm in a floodplain, then the amount of additional borrowing that I can do against my mortgage is going to be decreased as well. I'm going to buy less stuff. As climate impacts begin to accelerate over the coming century, these are the kind of risks that are going to compound one on the other in a way that is going to place considerable drag on economic growth and development within countries. So that's the last level of risk that we'll look at in this course. I really enjoy how you have woven all of these risks together and shown the broader impacts of them. You're not just talking about the physical risks, you're talking about this global scale of risks and then bringing that through on these three levels. It's just showing how interconnected these risks really are. You can see the compounding impacts right here, but then also halfway across the world. It's, it's very true. They're woven and they're interconnected and they're densely related areas of risk. And I agree with you that there are some of these risks that we typically think of a little bit more readily when we think about climate risks. Part of what's important is to broaden our view on where those risks exist and how they reside, because there are significant implications of underestimating our risk exposure, especially when it comes to you know, developing business strategies. That's going right into my next question here is, why is it important to keep these risks in mind, especially when developing those business strategies and financial plans? 
I, I do think that's an important question. And I do think that like in general, planners and investors really are interested in bearing risks in mind and making adjustments to the expected value of their initiatives as a result of that. But I, I think we've done an inadequate job of recognizing the risk uh, throughout our value chains. And in some ways, I think that that inadequate risk recognition can lead to poor decisions. To give you some hypothetical examples of failures to inadequately incorporate risk into planning. This example was part of a meeting that I was in actually earlier on this week with the planners at our university around climate action and climate adaptation. Think about somebody who's building a building. Part of that building is installing an HVAC system into the new building for heating and cooling. Part of how you determine how big of an HVAC system you really need involves calculating what's called the cooling load. Um, the cooling load uses inputs like how hot is it in the outdoor environment, how many days are, are exceedingly hot days, and what are the average temperatures, and that sort of thing. So you use those estimates of the outside environment as part of your calculation to determine how big of an HVAC system you need in order to cool the space. We're going to go about this normally. Basically, we've used our inputs for a model like that, just historical information, right? What have average temperatures been like in the past? How many exceedingly hot days have there been in the past? But thinking in that way is particularly effective in the face of climate change because it fails to take into account how those values, those environmental values, are likely to change over the life cycle of the system due to climate change there's a good likelihood that we're going to purchase a system that's going to be inadequately sized because we're purchasing it for environmental conditions of the past, not environmental conditions of the future. And an HVAC system, maybe it's got 25, 30 years life cycle. If a building owner is all of a sudden having to replace or upgrade that HVAC system in 10 years time or 15 years time when the existing system already has a lot of life cycle left in it, then that's costly. It's not just the cost to upgrade the value of the HVAC system. It has to be written down fairly substantially because it doesn't hold any value. Had the designer and the developer at the very beginning thought through the implications and the likely scenarios for temperature increases, it's likely that they would have made a different decision. They would have just purchased a larger system in the first place and they would have avoided those changes of having to replace or upgrade partway through the system's life cycle. So there's an example of failure to adequately take risk into consideration that leads to a less than optimal decision on the business side of things. Other examples come from the world of investments, of thinking about investments in financial assets like corporate stocks. There's been growing concern over the past five or 10 years that climate risks have and continue to be significantly underpriced in the value of financial assets. When we purchase oil stocks, for example, maybe we're not fully recognizing the risk that company is exposed to. Or if I pick up on that earlier example of my cement company that was exposed to those transition risks, if the share price for that company doesn't adequately price in the risks that are related to those transitions, then there's potential that the actual value of my investment is, is, is going to be quite overstated. And then when that risk materializes, all of a sudden I'll learn that the value of my investment has dropped and that the income that I'd anticipated earning off of it has fallen. So once again, I haven't adequately taken into consideration the risk exposure of my investment. And as a result, I purchased some stocks that maybe haven't produced the outcome that I anticipated that they would. There's so many risks and so many different facets to really take into consideration when you're looking at the economic drivers of climate change and how those drivers relate to climate change. How does an understanding of risks associated with climate change, how does that help 
organizations transition and adapt to being more resilient to climate change in the future? From my perspective, I think that you really do need to fully understand your risk exposure in order to determine how to respond appropriately. So how to adapt and in what way to adapt. Each organization faces a unique risk profile, and it's partly because every organization has its own unique characteristic value chain, its own products and services and, and that sort of thing. Each organization needs to develop adaptation plans that are unique to its own situation. Some companies, maybe their risk is greatest in their supply chain. So they've got overseas suppliers that have physical risk exposures due to their location along coastlines. For those companies, what might their adaptation strategies be? Well, maybe they need to look at diversifying their supply chain so that instead of having one single supplier, they've got multiple suppliers. So if one supplier fails, they've still got some supply coming in from the others. There are others companies who maybe their greatest risks are associated with the direct physical risk. For others, like our cement company example, their greatest risks might be their exposure to volatility and energy prices. So their strategies might relate more to identifying innovative ways to either decrease the energy intensity of their products or to gain access to alternative energy sources and that sort of thing. So I think that the risk recognition is the first part of adaptation planning. You have to know where your risk exposure is in order to know what kind of response you need to engage. We've been talking about risks, so we're talking about the dark side here in some ways, but there's another side to this as well, besides just the risk and loss side of the equation, because in some ways, understanding risk pathways also helps us understand the gap between what organizations have right now and what they need. And in my mind, each one of those gaps is actually an entrepreneurial opportunity. It's an opportunity to generate value for, for, for organizations by closing or narrowing the gap between what they have and what they need. I think that these risks really point out different points of interest and pieces that are important for organizations to take into consideration. And I really enjoy the way that you have shown it not only as a negative, this isn't only something to react to, but you can be proactive in creating an opportunity out of these risks. What are looked at as risks could potentially be an opportunity to change your business plan or change your strategy in order to become more resilient now and into the future, creating a better economic situation, better social and environmental situation. I think the key here is those risks are pointing to these major leverage points. I'm wondering if you could point to some of these major leverage points that you're seeing in the economy and the work that you're doing. If I kind of zoom out on that question and look at it more from a sort of macro perspective or a broad-based perspective, the kind of leverage points that I think are kind of crucial in bringing about a transition to a climate-adapted economy, some of them relate to government policy. So adequate pricing of the social cost of carbon, adequate carbon taxing, I think is a crucial policy. With the consumption of fossil fuels and of energy that is, is fossil fuel dependent, I think it's fairly clear cut now that those are the major contributor to climate change. This course in some ways kind of highlights this, is that climate change has costs, very real costs. As fossil fuels are, are priced right now, aside from carbon taxes, the actual social cost of using fossil fuels isn't incorporated correctly into the price. That's a great example of a market failure. So as a result, we're consuming a lot more fossil fuels at a much lower price than is really socially optimal. 
Uh, so somehow we need a leverage point that enables us to fully recognize the full social cost of, of things like fossil fuels, and that's where carbon taxes come in. Uh, I think that governments play a fairly significant role in improving adaptation finance. The private market for adaptation finance right now is underdeveloped and there's insufficient access to financial capital for climate adaptation. Governments have uh, a lot of leverage points that they can use in order to try and increase the flow of financial capital to adaptation activities. It can include things like blended finance, where the government is matching or partnering with private investment to bring projects about. And in those cases, maybe the government is assuming a larger portion of the risk associated with that to make the investment seem less risky to the private sector. They can be issuing their own finance that's maybe generated through green bonds, that sort of thing. There is a proper role for the government here. I think the other leverage points are in, in the financial and the market sectors, as opposed to the government sector. So these are market-based mechanisms that don't require government intervention necessarily. One of them that I think would be particularly important is to in increase and standardize the quality of uh, climate-related financial disclosures uh, of companies so that investors have a very clear understanding of the kind of climate risks that are being faced by the companies that they're thinking about investing in. I know that organizations like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures is working pretty hard to develop a set of standards for reporting on climate risk. It will help investors ensure that their investments are, and that the prices of assets are more closely reflecting the risk impacts. The other leverage point is us as consumers, our capacity to create incentives for businesses to move towards um, a lower impact, lower carbon substitutes and, and options for us. We can reward those companies by purchasing their products and their services. We can punish companies that, as I said, have big carbon footprints by beginning to move away from them as well. And markets will respond really, really pretty effectively to those kind of signals from consumers. The leverage points happen on multiple levels, certainly some in the government sector, but also in the investment and the market sector as well. Amazing. The piece that I'm coming back to here is that consumer, that everyday average person who can have an impact on, on these bigger systems and can leverage all of these systems in a certain way. Every time that you're purchasing something, you're voting on what you want to come and you're voting on the way you want the world to look. That brings me to this question of how does the economic system and these environmental risks and all of this complexity, how does that impact the average citizen? And I honestly do think that there really isn't any corner of society that isn't going to be touched by these risks, even if not directly. We're all stakeholders to our economy. So if I think about how it affects individuals, maybe the first way that, it's, that it could affect us is as consumers. So as risks materialize, we might find that we're unable to get the products and services that we need because supply lines have been disrupted by climate-related incidents. We may find that we're exposed to this is by disruptions in, in our access to products and services or with price adjustments. It definitely affects us individually as employees when the businesses we're working for are struggling because they've lost sales as a result of a climate event or even if under transitional risks. It definitely can affect our household wealth. You know, the investment examples that I've been using are a good example of that because many of us actually hold mutual funds as part of our retirement savings. 
And those mutual funds often do include holdings and in, uh, equity holdings in companies that do have fairly significant climate-related risk exposures. And if suddenly there's a, a greater recognition of those risks and those stocks or our mutual funds are suddenly repriced to take into account those risks, then all of a sudden that's a loss of wealth to us as households. That's a diminishing of our retirement savings. I, I think it affects us as citizens as damages occur to public infrastructure and so on. We're all likely to be asked to pitch in with higher taxes to rebuild that damaged infrastructure. But whenever we talk about these kind of risks, it's important to remember that they're, they're impacts that aren't distributed equally across society. I mean, I'm a kind of a middle-aged guy. I work as an assistant professor at a university. I've got a pretty secure job. I've got adequate financial and other resources that, that provide me with a level of resilience to a fairly large range of possible damages. But there are so many people who are much more vulnerable in their communities who really just don't have access to the resources that they need to be resilient against these risks. So, I mean, I think when we're talking about impact on individuals, it's important to remember that that um, there are members of our communities um, that, uh, that are likely to suffer disproportionately when these risks materialize. Mm-hmm. It's been wonderful talking with you. And I know that I've learned a lot through this conversation. <laughs> and you're very passionate about what you're doing and the economic side of things, but also this connection to the environment around you. It's clear in the examples that you're bringing to the table and the way that you want to see the world change. What made you interested in this idea of climate adaptation? As a human being living in this time, I think we really all need to be interested in climate adaptation right now. This is uh, the greatest existential issue of our time. And, and I think that mine really is the last generation that stands even a modest chance of, of contributing towards averting the most extreme outcomes of climate change. I think a lot of us have uh, personal entry points in, into the issue of climate change as, as well. So for me, uh, I've got kids and I've got grandkids, and that really forces a certain kind of accountability on me to uh, confront those issues of intergenerational welfare and justice because they exist within my own family. These are people whose eyes I need to look in. And 20 years from now, I want to be that person who has a meaningful and tangible response when my great-grandkids ask me how I responded to the climate risk. So I have to say, though, I kind of have my own sort of trigger event as well. And I think, you know, I think many people have their eyes open to, to climate change risks when, they're, when they've been exposed to, when they've been exposed to a catastrophe. So I think about you know, the folks in, in uh, Fort Murray around the wildfires, or if I think about the folks in Grand Forks, BC, around, around the flooding of the river there. I haven't been directly exposed to any kind of catastrophe like that, but I have a similar kind of trigger point that's maybe a little bit more slow moving, but it has really given me a greater sense of urgency when it comes to climate change. And this comes out of my relationship with forests. I started noticing a few years ago some subtle changes in some of the trees around me, signs of stress among some of the trees. We had here on Vancouver Island in the middle of the last decade, 2014 to 2016, we had three consecutive years of heavy drought. Uh, a bit of a reprieve in 2017, but another strong drought year in 2018. And uh, that drought's starting to have its impact on some of the local forests. So some of the trees in, in, in my neighborhood, cedar trees mostly, I've watched them perish in the six or seven years that I've lived on South Vancouver Island. 
and, and they perished as a result of drought that's, that's very likely associated with climate change. And it woke me up to what's at stake here, you know, it woke me up to the vulnerability of living things, these forests that I hold dear, and has, has brought to mind kind of the urgency of the need for action. So yeah, I have multiple different reasons for, for wanting to do this work. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights and give us a sneak peek at your course, Todd. This course starts on February 22nd, 2021. If you're interested in exploring the risks and economic costs associated with climate change more, I've included a link to Todd's course in the podcast description. Thank you all for listening, and I hope each of you have a wonderful day.